0: This is The Literary Life. I'm Mitchell Kaplan. I've owned Books and Books and been a bookseller for over 35 years. What you're about to hear are conversations about all things literary, with writers, readers, publishers, old friends, new friends, and anyone who might wander into our store with an interesting story to tell about their connection to books, reading, or writing. These will be informal, over the backyard fence kind of conversations. The kind I and booksellers everywhere have each and every day. With the vagina monologues, Eve Ensler took us into the deep, reclaimed depths of women's experiences. And since then, she's written or been involved in over a dozen plays, books, screen appearances, awards, honorary degrees, and survived advanced uterine cancer while fighting to end femicide and support survivors in the Congo. Now Eve is back with the apology. It's an epistolary narrative that asks us to go into the deep, cavernous complexity of an apology. One written in the perspective of her father, the man who sexually assaulted her repeatedly since she was five years old. And I have to say on a personal note, I read this... Four o'clock in the morning, I picked it up, and it still is with me. It's a book that has a power that is as um, immersive as anything that I've ever read in my life. Mm, thank you. And I want to welcome Eve Ensler to the literary. Thank life. you. Welcome I'm
1: so Eve. happy to be here with both of you.
0: You know, you've been you've had such a long career. Why the apology now? It's mm, a good question.
1: Um, I think I think there's a couple of reasons. I think, you know, as a child, um, after going through everything I went through with my father, the sexual abuse, the daily battery, the almost murdering me, I always believe somehow, you know, you have this fantasy that you're going to wake up. You know, when you're a teenager, you're going to wake up and your father's going to wake come out of his belligerent narcissism and he's going to apologize. He's going to see the error of his ways. He's going to see that he was crazy and that didn't happen. And my father died 31 years ago and there's not a day that goes by that I, I'm i not on some level longing for that apology. It used to be that I was constantly going to the mail and I never knew what I was going to the mail for, but I realized at a certain point it was that longing to hear him say what he had done and to say and 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 to take responsibility for it so that's one piece the second piece is, is that i've been working in the movement to end violence against women maybe 12 hours a day for the last 20 almost 25 years i've seen women do everything you know tell their stories break the silence put themselves out, risk humiliation, risk mockery, risk not people not believing them, but still going forward. We've seen the recent iteration of Me Too with all these famous men being called out. And yet it occurred to me that in all this time, I have never heard a man make a public apology for sexual violence or physical abuse, ever maybe in 16,000 years of patriarchy, we've never heard a public recorded apology. So I started to think, there must be something very essential, critical about an apology. It actually might be one of the columns of patriarchy, the non-apology. Maybe it's the thing that's holding up this whole story. And I said, why don't I – I said, we've done everything else. I was interviewed by this fantastically brilliant woman in, in in Rome, and she said, right, we get raped, we recover, and then we write their apologies too, right? But um, <laughs> she made me laugh so hard. But, um, but what I really decided – I said, maybe I should write the apology I need to hear, and maybe I should say the words and write it in his voice and let him inside me and go inside him. And see if A, that could be a healing experience, but also maybe I could actually create a blueprint, a template for what an apology might look like for men. Right. And this might be something, an offering. That men could look towards in making their apologies, because there are plenty of apologies that need to be made.
0: Well, we just saw an example of a non-apology. No, said, it, was, it was it was
1: astonishing. Right. It was it was on, it was not only a non-apology; it was a non-recognition of any woman who had been trafficked or sold, or or I, I mean, at one point when he said it was unbecoming, and she said unbecoming. That's child sex trafficking. Like the kind of lack of connectedness, consciousness around what he had done and the lack of any culpability or sense of awareness of what his role was. Astonishing. I, I,
0: I think what happens and what you brought out so, so clearly in the book is that somewhere deep in the minds of these people who do these atrocious things, there is a sense of guilt, a sense of doing something wrong. And they almost want, and in your case, your father, according to the way you wrote it, he wanted to do away with the evidence,
1: basically. Absolutely he wanted Absolutely. to
0: basically just expunge you from this earth. Well look at
1: the gaslighting that goes on. I mean, I think I think one of the things that I got very clear writing this book is that once he knew that I knew and I wasn't going along with the story anymore, then there was a huge risk. That I could one day tell that story. So what he had then to proceed to what he had to proceed to do was delegitimize me and make it so that nobody would ever believe me. He had to turn me into a liar. He had to turn me into an untrustworthy person. He had to make me stupid. He had, I mean, it, literally everything he did after that was a step by step erasure of me as a human being, so that I could never be believed. And all we have to look to is the Kavanaugh hearings. To see or the Anita Hill hearings, to see the complete erasure of those brilliant women who have stunning careers, right? But how step by step by step it was making them stupid, making them not, you know, even though we all believe both of them. Do you know what I mean? Right. So I think I think part part of what doing this book has shown me is um how critical apologies are. How how they are literally a cornerstone. In, you know, at one point in the book, my father says to me to be an apologist is to be a traitor to men. you know, once one man admits he knows what he was doing was wrong, the whole story of patriarchy begins to crumble. and I think that that really is it. I mean it it's like to say you are wrong is actually admitting that, you are humble, you are vulnerable, you, you know. This well, it's
0: the it's the hallmark of our politics today. Uh-huh. I mean, what does everybody say about our president, that he had never admits to anything that he's done that's wrong?
1: On the contrary, he becomes the victim. Yes. Which is exactly what my father did. It's the it's right. the reversing the victim pathology. It's suddenly, there's a witch hunt against him. Suddenly, Well, a, he turned
0: a, the whole a, family a, against you as yes, well. Yes, exactly. But I think the other thing that, that your book does, for, for me at least, As as a man, as a man who has a daughter, um, the absolute brutality with which your father approached, how he approached you, was something that I had never really seen before. Mm. And not that I'm, I guess, maybe I'm naive to that. But the absolute brutality you wrote so vividly that it literally took my breath away. Mm -hmm. And I have a 29-year-old daughter, and I remember when she was five, Mm -hmm. and I remember Mm -hmm. when she Mm -hmm. would run and take my shoes off when I came home from work. And I just couldn't imagine, I just couldn't imagine that kind of sensibility, which would create the kind of canceling of you as a person mm. that your father managed to do without an apology mm. you know mm. at some point
1: it, it's like if you look at where patriarchy will take you if you let it go right. if you if you put privilege and power together with a childhood that he had which was basically he was born 15 years after the last child he was the accident that became the miracle he right. was the golden boy he was perfect He was adored. But adoration is not love. Adoration is a projection of someone's self-idealized image onto you, which you were then forced to live up to, robbing you of your humanity. When you have to be perfect, you can't be vulnerable. You can't show weakness. You can't cry. You can't be open. You can't express wonder or curiosity or doubt or anything that's human. And I think what my father did with all those feelings he wasn't allowed to share is he pushed them under, and he pushed them under, and he pushed them under, and they eventually metastasized. But
0: I still don't, I don't think that lets him off the hook in it's any not way they're whatsoever. They're, they're, no, wait, let me let it me just show, say, it does there's show, a
1: huge difference between explanation and justification. True. There's no. no justification for what my father did, or any perpetrator does. Right. but. Understanding is critical to transformation. And what I wanted to do in this book is I wanted to let my father explain to me how he became a kind of man who was capable of doing what he was doing. It didn't justify it. But it's like, if we don't look at the roots of the violence in men, why, why, for example, are one out of three women on this planet being raped and beaten? I wish I could tell you that this book was really extreme. I thought I'll put this into the world in a couple – hourly, I'm stories. getting Instagrams, letters. I, got a, I just got a letter like a half hour ago from a woman from Italy who told me, I, I picked up your book. I started to read it. I live in darkness. My father did the same thing Ooh. to me. I can't pull myself out of the hole. Will I ever get out of this darkness? I feel like I'm sinking every day. I, I cannot tell you how many letters like that I'm getting. So – it This is a pathology that is, that is rampant. And I was just in India and Taiwan and Paris and Italy. It doesn't matter where I go.
0: You wrote this. It's a kind of hybrid book, really. It's a memoir because it tells your true story. And it tells the story of your father as you imagined it to be. So what kind of research went into that?
1: Well, I think I really – I say at the beginning of the book that it's a conjuring. You know, my – My father obviously didn't talk a lot about anything that mattered. So I didn't know very much about my father. You know, there were hints. Like I knew he wanted to be a rabbi. You know, um, I knew that he had a very tricky older brother where something went on. I knew he had sisters.
0: And his parents.
1: Yeah. But I never knew his parents because my father was 50 when I was born. So they were gone by then. I only knew a couple of aunts. Um, So I didn't know a lot about my father. And I certainly didn't know anything about his childhood, except what I could piece together from hearing from his aunts that he was totally adored and like, and also seeing who my father was, like seeing, and I knew the charm part because I had witnessed the charm part, you know, the, my father was so charming and so handsome. So it was, it was this ability to fool the entire world and then come home and, you know, it was very interesting a person who worked with my father wrote me an email recently after reading the book and he said i worked with your father for years and it was always really weird to me he said that in all the years i worked with him he never once mentioned his children hmm. and i th- and and i was like okay that would be my father you know but um so, so, I think the book is a conjuring. I think there's some things I knew. Um, there's some things I made up. There's some things I I really believe my father told me as I was writing the book, like he would literally start speaking to me. Um, he was very present when I wrote the book. He really was present.
0: Well, and and what you describe so well is how you were able, to not ultimately be defeated by it. It was certainly difficult. It was certainly created an amazing amount of upheaval. But how did you survive it all, do you think?
1: You know, I, I I just wrote to the woman who wrote me today and I just said to her, it takes a long time to come out of darkness. Doesn't happen overnight. First of all, you have to realize you're in it. It took me so many years to even understand that what I went through wasn't normal. I remember making a joke one night being drunk with friends in college saying, Yeah, and then my father went, told my mother to get the kitchen knife. And everyone stopped laughing and said, What? This isn't normal? This didn't happen in your family? Like I had no frame of reference. Why would I? Right. So I think it takes a long time to know how sick you are. And then how disassociated you are. And then when your feelings start to come, then to survive what you're feeling. But I think the two things that kept me alive, if I look back, were writing and imagination and being an activist and fighting for other people and fighting for people who were just a little worse off than me. I think that gave my life so much meaning and it gave my life purpose. And I, as long as I could kind of be engaged in that, I felt... I mean there is such a value in being in the struggle and being an activist and being caring about other people because when you can't care for yourself when you can't function at least you know I remember the years where I was just completely falling apart and I went and worked at a homeless shelter for 8 years mm. and I just showed up every day and and it was like okay I can do this look I can do this I can't do anything else but I can do this you know and I think and I think also like I think we find different ways to survive and to heal at different points in our lives, you know, like there was time when there was therapy, there was time when I did a lot of body work, there were times, you know, when I found spiritual practices, but I think I think really it's finding people who love you and who celebrate you and who believe in you was probably the deepest healing in my life. You know, understanding that that family was never going to be was never my family.
0: You created you know, a new family. Yeah, exactly. Basically. And you did it mostly on your own. I mean, yeah. When you left college, you were on your own. Oh, totally. Yeah yeah.
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. It was. My father handed me a check for a thousand dollars, shook my hand, and said, "Have a good life." <laughs> and that was it.
0: So it was like. In some ways, that's that was a gift. It, it was, it was a, it, a gift. actually
1: it was a gift because, because I had to make my way. Right. I had to figure out how to make money. I had to figure out how to survive, and um, I don't. I don't regret that. You know, I did at the time because I was lost in floundering. and but you develop muscle and you figure out how to I think sometimes people who are brought up with a lot of money and uh, trust funds, it's it actually can be very defeating it can be very defeating because you don't you don't have to your engine doesn't have to kick into gear.
0: You were a writer at Middlebury. I was. And then you then you moved into the theater from there.
1: No, then I then I went to New York City where I tried to survive and as a waitress for many years and was writing on the side. Um and you know that life of waitressing, you know, all the time and writing on the side isn't is quite a life. <laughs> but I think eventually You know, a poem would get published here. I remember my first poem got published in the Chicago Review and I about died. And then it was like step by step. And then I finally wrote this one-woman show – Um, that we put on in this loft and then it moved to an off-Broadway theater so that was the beginning and then you know step by step by step you just keep working and working and working and working and eventually you know I assumed I'd always be a a very way way downtown artist because I was a very political writer and I was writing about feminist issues and I was writing about the body and and at that time there weren't a lot of people writing about that and it was not you know um I don't know. It, it, it was downtown stuff. So, you know, the fact that the vagina monologues was the thing that brought me, you know, in, into the so-called mainstream, I still find to be the funniest thing in the whole world. I mean, the most ironic thing, you know.
0: The writing in this is just so wonderfully done and, and so wonderfully conceived. The whole idea of the shadow man. Mm. Um, talk about that a little bit.
1: Well, I think, I think one of the things we do to boys and all boys is is that we don't allow them to feel. We tell them, you know, we have this really uh, unbearable idea of what it means to be a man. And it, and it usually means you can't be tender and you can't be vulnerable and you can't express tears and you can't even express wonder on some level because wonder would make you in awe of something which would make you humble to something, right? And so I think um, my... My father, like a lot of boys, like, what do you do with those feelings? What do you do with hurt? What do you do with tenderness? What do you do with fear? What do you do with all those things that you would like somebody to give you solace or comfort for, but you can't reach out? You push them underground. And, you know, I I once said, I think that all the bullets are for men are hardened tears, like the tears that didn't get shed. And so I think my father eventually pushed so much underground that it metastasized into an actual character this character called Shadow Man, who I think when I was born, I was the first daughter. And I think he had such overwhelming, so many overwhelming feelings of tenderness toward me. But no one had been tender to my father or no one had allowed tenderness inside my father. So he had no way to process those feelings. So what he did, which is what men often do, is he sexualized it because that was the closest component to what tenderness felt like. And of course then it became incest, and then it became sexual violence. Um, And that character, that shadow man character was out of control because all those feelings had now just become anarchy because they couldn't be controlled any longer. And after he crossed that line, he must have had so much horror at himself that rather than feeling it towards himself, he expressed it towards me. And that rage just grew and
0: grew and grew. Yeah. You know? And and you reminded of him. You were oh, reminded of him. I was him just the constant the
1: reminder, you know. Right. And because also I had changed. I right. had been this open girl nice. of wonder. I just loved life. And suddenly I was bitter and I cut off all my hair and I was always crying and I was I was a mess. And I and you know, he had to look at me and be reminded like I was the consequence of his behavior. I he had he had wrecked me with his invasion, wrecked me with his selfishness. You know, he just took what he wanted and didn't care what it would do. And so he he didn't want to see that. So he wanted to destroy me and proceeded to.
0: So given all the work you've done over your life, given all of the activism, all of the introspection, uh, now after writing the apology, how do you feel?
1: I feel amazing. I feel amazing. You know, at the end of the book, my father says, or I say, or my father and I say together, who knows, um, old man, be gone. Right. And it, it reminds me a lot at the end of Peter Pan when Tinkerbell just goes, it, I really had that experience. I, I, I learned something about the dead in this book, that the dead really do need us to be in, in communication with them. Often they're stuck. They can't get out of certain realms. And I felt at the end of this book that when my father went. He went. And he hasn't been back, and nor have the Im- impacts of my father. Like, I'm not in that story anymore. You know, so much of my life was proving my father wrong, proving I wasn't stupid, proving I wasn't bad, proving I wasn't a nothing. And my, I was on that wheel my whole life, which to some degree, to be honest, I think that's what capitalism is. I think it's it's kind of based on this wheel of proving our worthiness because we all come from these families where we're told over and over and over, we're not good enough, we're not smart enough, we're not thin enough, we're not pretty enough, we're not blah, 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 blah. And so we're all on this spinning wheel to prove it and prove it. But once the smoke was over, it was like nothing to prove. Story over. This is my life. This is my story now.
0: He didn't own you at all at no, that
1: point. Done. And so sometimes I really okay. So what is the motor of my life now? You know that was a kind of you know it was an interesting motor. Now I'm just like, it's new. It's new. And and some days I just don't feel like doing anything. And I, and it, and 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 when I am writing now when I am creating, it's coming from such a different modus operandi. It it it's like that I'm just discovering what it is. You know, remarkable. I think. Men are stuck. You know, I, I think those who have been called out, uh, uh, some of them are just waiting, biding their time, hoping this is all going to go away, and then they'll just go back to business as usual. Some actually feel bad, and they don't know what to do. I think we have to find a different way now of approaching how we're going to end violence against women. and And I think in the book, I kind of learned the architecture of an apology, like what is what is the anatomy of it? and I mean, I think it's four stages. I think it's really looking at your own childhood, your own culture, who made you, what made you, what went in, into making you the kind of man that is capable of harassment or rape or demeaning or battery or incest, and then really doing deep self-interrogation. And then the second stage is really doing a detailed accounting, a detailed accounting of what you have done. Not, I'm sorry if I abused you, but but what were the specific things? I came into your room at five years old and pulled your underpants down. What are the details? Because the liberation is in the details. That's when you and your survivor and your victim know that it is real and you are on it and you are admitting it. And then what were your intentions when you were doing it? Was it that your, your, your daughter was such a light in the world and you couldn't handle the light, so you had to erase the light? Was it that your girlfriend um, was so smart and so beautiful that you had to, you know, do whatever you did to her to make her less? And then the third stage, and, and this is such a critical stage, is feeling what your victim felt when you were doing what you did to her. Opening your heart, letting it break, letting it feel the betrayal, letting it feel the nightmare so that you actually know what were the consequences and the impacts of your behavior short-term and long-term. And then the last stage is taking responsibility for it and making amends. All of that indicating you are a changed person who isn't capable of ever doing any of that again. And I really believe if, if, if men do not now join us, like, look, violence against women has never been a woman's issue. Turns out we don't rape ourselves, but we took it on generously so because we didn't think men would. If men now do not say, this is our issue, we are going to look at why we are violating life, not just women, but the earth itself. Like we are destroying the body of the earth, right? right? Right. we so men and and here is a path here is a tool here is a process a sacred process that you can undergo to to change who you are i don't think i've i've talked to a lot of women survivors yes there are some who want to kill their survivor and they want them in prison and i certainly had feelings like that for periods of time in my life but i would say the majority of women i've talked to want their want their perpetrators to change they want them to apologize. They want them to take responsibility and they want them to change. They they don't want to punish them for eternity. They don't want to have them die. They want them to change. And we don't see men doing that.
0: So what's getting in the way of that?
1: That's a $25 million dollar question. I, I
0: imagine it is. But I mean, what is I your think, thought on that? I think it's that? fear.
1: I think it's this sense that men have been taught that to apologize is to express weakness, is to lose status. And To some some degree, it is losing that hierarchy because when you apologize, you become an equal. But do you want to have status or do you want to have humanity? I think that's really the question men have to ask themselves now. Are Are we going for a world in which we're going to cherish life and continue life? Or are men going to take us out holding to the death rattle onto their power? Really, it's the question. It's the only question right now. You only have to look around the world to see the escalation of strong men in power, whether it's Duterte D- 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 or Modi or the Predator in Chief or, or Bolsonaro or, or,
0: or, Erdogan,
1: or. or Erdogan, you just name it, we are at a peak of um, I would say, you know, malignant patriarchy, which has the potential to make the human race extinct. And if even 10% of the men on the planet I mean, Castro always said you only need ten percent of the people on the planet to have a revolution. If only ten percent of the people, men on the planet, would make the decision to start to undergo this kind of process, things would begin to turn around really fast. So it's a question. You know, I don't know. Like this is my offering. I can only offer a trigger. I can only offer a potential catalyst. I I don't I I don't know that I totally fully understand men. But I think men understand men, and I think this is where – this is the moment. This is the moment we're in right now. It's a critical moment.
0: How do we raise our sons today? And I'm not expecting you to have an answer. I don't have an answer. I had two sons. I don't know that I specifically went to raise them in a particular way. But it ultimately comes down to empathy. Totally. It ultimately comes down to the idea of empathy. It comes down to the idea of I need to feel that if I do something, it's going to hurt you, and exactly. I have to be able to feel that.
1: Well, part of it is not squashing boys' feelings. Right. And I think everybody does it. I think men do it. I think women do it. I think I think we're all terrified to see boys be vulnerable. You know, we, we tell ourselves, well, we have to protect them in the world that they're going into. Well, it's only that world because we're telling them to be like that in that world, right? right? You know, and, and I always tell this story on myself. Many, many years ago, I was in Kosovo, You know, right after the war, helping people clean up um, and, and helping survivors. And I walked into this little village, and there was a woman in her backyard, and her son, who had been away for two years in the war, had just arrived as we arrived. And they were crying and crying and crying, and it was just this emotional scene. When he saw me, he threw his arms around me, and he started to wail in my arms. And I had two thoughts oh my God, there is a man wailing in my arms. Oh my God, there's a man wailing in my arms. And I heard that voice. And I went, did you just condemn a man for wailing in your arms? Me, a feminist? And I realized how ingrained that was. And my whole life changed after that day. I realized like I'm, I'm someplace part of this creepy story too. I'm holding men. And so part of all of us, we have to look at, why are we afraid for men to feel? What do we think is going to come crashing down? Here's the deal. Men have been running the world for a very long time and look where we are. It's not a good place. It's not a good place. We're in serious, serious trouble right now. There's not a direction you look in. So the non-feeling thing hasn't really worked out, right? I think we need to try something else, (laughs)
0: you know? 100% 100% agree. <laughs> There's, there, there is, there uh, is I think, no other path that we can take at this point. What you've done in terms of um, bringing forth, I wouldn't call them issues, but bringing forth things that are part of our, our, our culture and identifying them, spotlighting them, and then also being active around them. Is is unique, is something that no one else does. And I thank you for it.
1: Thank you. Well, I just want everyone to know we have a website. It's called the Apology And people are beginning to send in apologies. And we welcome men to send in their apologies. Um, and I will say that I was just in Taiwan. They've already started an apology initiative. They're starting one in India. I think we're gonna begin to see this start to happen. And if you want to get the book, and sit with four male friends and a therapist or a clergy or an advisor, and start to really work on your amends and what you it would be a very good thing. And it isn't this isn't about gotcha. This is about we need you to be with us in the depth of your transformation so we can begin to imagine a world where we're all going to survive. That's how critical this is. This isn't like, you know, oh, we've got you now and we're going to pin you to the corner and punish you for life. It's not about punishment. It's about change.
0: It's about healing. It's about change. healing.
1: And we've got to get out of this punishment mentality. It's 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 not doing anybody any good particularly the three million people who are dying in prisons and aren't changing because there is no love. There is no, there is no thinking. There is no rehabilitation. There is no understanding that everybody gets where they get to because something's been done to them and the cycle has to be broken. You
0: mentioned gaslighting before. Mm -hmm. And I think it also means that we have to be honest politically with what's happening. Mm -hmm. And we have to be honest about what what's happening in the world around us, even right now. Mm -hmm. And if we're not, um, this will just perpetuate itself. Totally.
1: And look, you know, I've always felt about this predator-in-chief. Like, I've said it for a long time. Like, he didn't grow out of a vacuum. White supremacy, misogyny, hatred of immigrants, has been in this country forever. What he did is he surfaced. He's our reckoning. And he's given us an opportunity To really make reparations and apologies to indigenous people who were first, to African-Americans who were enslaved for 400 years and then thrust into Jim Crow and Reconstruction and and mass incarceration. Like, we have an opportunity right now. Everything's up. It's right here. We can actually turn this around or we we can be, you know, flooded by it and washed out to sea. It's up to
0: us. So the apology will spread. I hope In so. every direction. Yeah,
1: that's the idea.
0: Thank you, Eve. Thank, thank you. Thank you, Eve Ensler.
1: Thank you.